Welcome to Witch City Witches, a podcast from Salem, Massachusetts, exploring the practice of witchcraft. I'm Anna. And I'm Becca. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. We are going to be discussing some beginner questions today because we have questions from lots of folks who are starting out on their witchcraft journey. And so we hope that we can give everyone some tools to get started on their paths. But before we get started, I did want to let everyone know that I am running another session of my Intro to Tarot workshop online in April. That's going to be April 5th and 12th. So if you want to join me for that, please pop over to witchcitywitches.com and take a look. And um, I want to remind everyone that I do have a YouTube channel now. Um, it's called This Magic House. It's youtube.com slash C slash This Magic House, all is one word. Um, my latest video, which I am editing right now, is a review of the Forager's Daughter tarot deck. Um, and I've recently put the Fifth Spirit tarot deck review up. So that will be up and possibly by the time this comes out will be my month ahead for March readings. I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't recorded those yet, so. So before we dive into all this, uh, before we started recording, Becca and I were chatting about the fact that it's been kind of a rough couple of days for everyone. And so we took a peek at the current astrological transits and saw some interesting things. So Becca, do you want to let our listeners know since it seems like we're experiencing like a collective shit <laughs> yeah so i think th there's one big transit happen there's of course there's a lot of stuff happening in aquarius which we've been talking about you know for months now um of, the sun has moved out of aquarius and is now in pisces but you know venus Ju jupiter mercury saturn they are all still in aquarius which gives kind of a airy quality to things but I think the, the big thing that's happening right now that people are probably feeling is that Saturn in Aquarius is square to Uranus in Taurus. And I just want to, I'm going to read just the first couple of sentences from Robert Hand's Planets in Transit and uh, for uh, Saturn square Uranus. So this can be an extremely upsetting and tense period particularly if you've allowed your life to crystallize into rigid patterns that cannot easily be changed. This is a time of great tension because your desire for change and new experiences seem to be thwarted by circumstances or other people. If you've been putting up with unpleasant conditions in any area of your life, these will become much more difficult to withstand now. The tensions may become so great that you will unexpectedly take very radical actions that you would not have anticipated a short while ago. So it goes on for another page, but I think just that intro paragraph really gives the flavor of what this transit is. And this is a worldwide transit that everyone is feeling to some extent. If you have planets in the fixed signs of Aquarius, Taurus, Leo, or um, Scorpio, you're probably going to be feeling that even a little bit stronger because those will probably those might be um, either conjuncting or opposing or squaring some of your natal planets, and so that will be creating additional tension if you have strong placements in any of the those fixed signs. But this is you know this is a worldwide transit that I think everyone is kind of feeling just just it's very frustrating, um, and yeah, I think that. Uh, 
you know, we were talking about it um, between us before we started recording that it's it's been a pretty frustrating day. This has been going on for a couple of days now. Um, they're both outer planets, so um, they move slowly. You know, if there's like a four day period where they're very closely squaring and then they'll kind of start drifting off, but it might take a little while because they're both slow moving planets. Yeah, and the way that you had explained it was that, you know, Saturn is basically the planet of, you know, these are boundaries and restrictions and I need to follow all the rules. And in this square position with, sorry, who's it square against? It's it's squaring Uranus, yeah. Yeah, so square Uranus is basically like, no, fuck you and your rules. And, you know, it was interesting because that made me go like, huh, well, it is a hierophant year. And this is the time when we are focusing on rules and whether or not, you know, structure, tradition, whether or not we want to keep, you know, sustaining those systems or if it's time to break them down. So it just feels very sort of appropriate that. Yeah. And this is where we are. And with Uranus and Taurus, which has been a few years now and has a few years more to go, it's like an eight-year cycle that Uranus is in a sign. Taurus is about the home. Taurus is about that steady Earth energy. Um, And Uranus is the rebel. Like I said, Uranus is the fuck that noise planet. Um, And, you know, this can, on a worldwide level, this can bring what we've seen a lot of um, the nationalism that the rebellion is home-based that like, you know, protect the homeland. That's, you know, and this Uranus in in Taurus happened during world war II as well. It, that's very much that, you know, like that kind of ethnic pride aspect that can turn really toxic is Mm -hmm. definitely an aspect of that, but it's also like these revolutions in the way that we live and the way that we eat and the way that like, there's very like personal things about the home that happen when Uranus is in Taurus. So it's, it's very, and in, uh, I'm in an astrology group and things keep getting brought up about Uranus. Look at this weird thing about food that's happening because of Uranus and Taurus, you know, that's, it's interesting all on its own, that that's where, um, the, the revolutionary aspect is happening is very much on a very personal level. You know, Taurus is a very personal planet, sign. Taurus is a personal sign. As you mentioned, you know, when we started kind of looking at the transits for the year, that this year is going to be better than last, but not easy and gentle. Right. And that's definitely, yeah, I definitely think the case um, so far. I don't know if you listened to the astrology podcast, but they, you know, when they did their year aheads, one of the things they said was um, 2021 is going to be a mixed bag, which is a huge improvement over 2020. (laughs) Right. You know, so like what would in other circumstances be like, oh, this seems kind of problematic here. It's just like, well, after the year we've had, no, that looks fine. Right. Man, low bar. Yeah. Low bar. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to discuss today to kind of follow up on our previous episode, which was with, you know, sigil maker, Aaron Elise, and we talked about the sigil engine and this idea of technomancy that's gaining traction, right? Using technology to enhance magic. And, you know, since we, we published that, that episode, or even, you know, since we recorded it, cause we pre-recorded it, the sigil engine has had more than 300,000 sigils generated which is amazing. And now it's getting to a point where we're seeing, you know, technomancy get into more mainstream spaces. So now there's a vice.com article, uh, you know, on there, which tells me like, all right, well, it's starting to hit like the, you know, the zeitgeist of air quotes, more fringe spaces as, you know, as fringe as vice is, it's still pretty mainstream. Right. And so yeah. the, 
Yeah, so the headline there is internet occultists are trying to change reality with a magical algorithm, um, which is really, really interesting. And it's always interesting to see witchcraft talked about in these more mainstream places, right? Because we see that witchcraft is gaining enough traction that mainstream has to acknowledge it. But we also still see the ways that mainstream culture kind of sort of diminishes the validity of the practice. Um, because the like the subheadline here on this article is the sigil engine adapts an ancient practice for the internet age, creating mystic symbols that true believers take and bend the universe to their will. Right. So there's always this language in there about, oh, true believers, but not, you know, air quotes, normal people or <laughs> And, and it is vice. And I think that they have uh, an editorial rule that they have to be snarky and a little bit of an asshole. Um, that's just their writing style. But I, it is, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, if you're interested in what we talked about when we mentioned it last uh, episode, that it's a really interesting article to read because they do interview the people who created it and they talk more about some of the algorithm that goes into it and the, the magical practices behind the algorithm that we were just sort of guessing about when we talked about it last episode. And, mm -hmm. you know, they actually asked them and they have answers. So, um, so that's interesting. And they do actually talk about how they see this as just a progression of technology from clay tablet to ink, to ink to computer. Like it's just, you know, it's a different technology. It's a different way to do magic. And it is a, it's on a progression. It's not, um, it's not a completely you know, new weird thing. It's just a, a continuation of, based on technology. So I do like, you know, I encourage people to read it if you're interested. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's, you know, there's commentary in the article about how, you know, there was a time when we believed that technology would eradicate, you know, belief in witchcraft and magic, but it's really just another tool for magic. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we've talked about before as well, that, that idea that you don't have to like live with no light and water and electricity and no modern conveniences and, you know, like just use ink made from bark or whatever to write in your grimoire that, you know, the witches of those days were doing that because that's literally what they had available. And there's nothing right. that says that we have to fight progress, but understand that, you know, progress can be a tool and all of that fun stuff. I think that's a good segue to talk about, um, you know, the beginning witch and what tools you need and how to get started. But I think before we do that, one further technology standpoint we have a whole bunch of new Instagram followers that, and some people have um, mentioned us in very flattering ways that we wanted to say thank you. Yeah, so Joelle from Luna Gypsy Tarot gave us a shout out. So thank you so much for the shout out. And that got reshared by, um, oh God. And that got reshared by Wish With Me. So thank you so much everyone for the attention and the love and Joelle. Uh, it tagged us in a mini challenge called Know Thy World, and they tagged us under the prompt of witches who inspire me. So that's super amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We're glad that folks are enjoying listening to us. And, you know, of course, we're always here to answer more questions like we'll be doing today. So. Yeah, absolutely. If you have questions, you have episode suggestions, something you'd like us to cover, definitely send us an email at askawitch at witchcitywitches.com. 
Um, you know, that's when we did our, our weather magic episode, that was a listener suggestion. So we do definitely, you know, um, we listen to you and we use that feedback when we're putting together new episodes. So we'd love to hear from you. So we had some questions from, um, from new witches, people who are interested in being new witches, but aren't quite there yet about how to do that. And we wanted to, I think, the first thing is, I, I would say, no matter what path you're looking for, is to relax. You're not going to get smited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people go into this with a, with a lot of fear. And even with, you know, tarot, which for me is a huge part of my witchcraft practice. But, uh, you know, I recently... I'm running an intro to tarot workshop right now. And when folks were thinking about whether to sign up or not, they're talking, they're sending me messages saying like, oh, well, you know, how do I keep my deck and how do I charge it and how do I protect it and how do I make sure I'm, I'm respecting it? And then I had a comment that was, you know, I'm just so afraid of, you know, doing it wrong and disrespecting the deck. And I, I just told them like, listen, like there's no, like the deck itself doesn't, isn't, you know, conscious. It's not going to get offended. So, you know, you have to develop your own relationship with it, but all these sort of superstitions surrounding it are, are like, they're not real. You don't have to go into it from a place of fear. Yeah. So, yeah, so definitely it comes up with tarot and it comes up with all sorts of witchcraft and paganism. And as we were looking at the, the questions that people have asked, the thing that stood out to us is before you can really say, like, what do you need? What, what tools do I need? What you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? What are you looking to do? Are you looking for religion? Are you looking for a magical practice? Are you looking for, you know, somewhere in between or, you know, a combination of the two? Because there definitely is paganism that doesn't involve magic. And there is magic that does not involve religion at all. So, um, you know, obviously we've talked about, you know, a lot about what witchcraft means to us and Anna, you know, witchcraft is your religion, whereas my paganism is kind of, you know, interrelated to witchcraft, but they're not, you know, exactly the same thing. They are an overlapping Venn diagram. <laughs> um, they're not a complete circle. But I think, you know, really defining what you're looking for is going to impact how you look for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these days, you know, when you're looking at the literature out there, when folks are looking for witchcraft, mostly what they're encountering, right, is, is Wicca. And so you'll see books like uh, Teen Witch by Silver Ravenwolf or this you know, Spiral Dance by Starhawk. And, you know, there's all the Scott Cunningham books. And there's a lot of stuff out there, but most of it tends to be through a more Wiccan lens. And so what it gives you is an outline for like, okay, so you want to be Wiccan. Here's all the holidays. Here's your tools that you need. Here's how you pray to deities. And it kind of gives you a how-to manual for practicing that religion when realistically people who are going into it aren't necessarily looking for that kind of complete, you know, here prepackaged uh, religion formula. And so, you know, to clarify, like the first question that we're answering is what tools does someone need to get started? And as Becca already said, that question of, well, depends on what you want to accomplish, but let's dive into that a little bit. So the first thing is, you know, if what you're trying to gain out of your witchcraft practice is to develop a relationship with deity, right, then you need things that help you connect to that deity. And we talked a whole lot about that in a previous episode. So we're not going to dive into that part of it a ton today. 
So for anyone who's interested in learning more about how to choose a deity and cultivate a relationship with a deity, uh, we definitely recommend that you go back to episode 16 from season one in our podcast, which is literally called How to Choose a Deity and Cultivating Relationships with Deities. So now we can take some time to talk about the other aspects of this. Um, I think that one of the places where people tend to come in uh, as an entry point is also elemental magic, right? So that's connecting with the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And so if that's your approach to it, is that you're looking to do elemental magic or just connect with the elements, then the tools that you're going to need are things that represent those elements to you. And it can be super, super basic or it can be super fancy and expensive. It's funny. When I uh, when I first started as a teenager, um, my representations of the elements were much more traditional. And I made a lot of them in art class in high school. So, you know, I made a pentacle out of clay and I made a goblet out of clay. And like, you know, I, I did a lot of that sort of thing. Um, that, you know, they're very personal tools and they were very like, you know, traditional. Um, now for my earth element, I will, you know, have a bowl of salt, like, you know, table salt. That's what I use. So mm -hmm. I think that um, I was going, because as you said, you know, I was a teenager in the late eighties, early nineties. I'm probably a little bit older than some of our listeners, um, but the Scott Cunningham books were what was available for me yet. Like Silver Wave and Wolf hadn't started writing yet. Um, so, you know, it was really, it was the Scott Cunningham books that I had available and, you know, some other, some other books, but that kind of first wave of, um, witch publishing was really just starting at that time. And it was like, okay, so Wicca is what it is. And so that's, you know, you have these like specific things and it was really representations like in the tarot deck. Cause I, I started tarot before I started other witchy stuff. Same. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was really much like, you know, it was like, okay, so there's a pentacle and there's a goblet and there's a knife and, you know, and there's, you know, a wand or, you know, something for fire or like a candle. Um, so I think that um, I was very focused on that. And, you know, that worked for me for a while, but I've definitely grown out of that. And so I, I've become much less precious about the tools I use. That, Same. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get a drinking glass from the kitchen and fill it with water. And that's my water for my ritual, if, you know, depending. It depends on what kind of thing I'm doing. But usually I'm kind of loose about those sort of things. Right. And that gets into that idea of, you know, what is your witchcraft practice? And is it something that you want to sort of be living daily? Or is it something that's very compartmentalized, right? Because, you know, back in, you know, the old medieval witchy days, people didn't have the resources to have a fancy set of altar tools. So, you know, the ritual knife that they're using to represent air is going to be the knife that they were using, you know, in their kitchen. And so, you know, you can think of your magic as something that's not super precious, but you can also think of, you know, all your everyday items are special and there's magic in everything. Right. right. So you have to be intentional all the time. You're not a witch just when you're in circle, like you're a witch all the time. Yeah. And I think that there is, there's a lot of overlap. And, you know, when we talk to people about like, you know, what does witch mean to you? And I think that we have this one image of the witch, which is sort of like the storybook image of the woman living on the edge of the forest, brewing potions out of herbs. Um, 
and we have that image, but then our modern view of witchcraft is very much influenced by British ceremonial magic from the Victorian ages. And that's where we get these like fancy altar tools from and all of that. And that's definitely a valid way to practice magic. Um, but it is not the only way to practice magic. And I think that, you know, Wicca is very influenced by that about from cer British ceremonial magic. And a lot of those, um, those rituals and those tools have been influenced by that as well. So I think that that becomes part of it, like, oh, well, I don't have this like really specific thing that I like, I think I've brought this up like in one of like the first or second episodes of this podcast that we did that, you know, I have four whisks in my kitchen and they're all slightly different and I use them for slightly different things, but in a pinch, I can use a fork to make scrambled eggs. Right. You know, and but it won't work for meringue. Like so, it depends on like you know how how complicated are you trying to get with this with your magic, and definitely for a beginner, don't get complicated. Like just like in cooking, you start making scrambled eggs before you try to make a souffle. Definitely <laughs> with magic, you want to start with the little stuff and get comfortable before you try something enormous that can, you know, if you, I mean you're working with big energies. And so if you're getting into witchcraft, I assume that you believe in these energies are real. The bigger energies can be dangerous. I don't want to say like, oh, no, it's fine. It's, it's, you know, there's no danger here, but you have to like really, you have to really try to get to that level where you get the things are dangerous, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you have to like, that's not something that you're going to find in a intro to Wicca book. That's not something, you know, it's, that's something that people who have been studying for decades and decades and are, you know, doing astrological magic and all that sort of thing that, you know, you can trip yourself up. But a lot of that being safe is simply starting out slow and building up because, yeah. you know, you don't want, you don't something, want something to blow back in your face because so one way that that beginner magic can blow back on you is an ill-phrased request. Yeah, make sure that what you're asking for really is what you want. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but, you know, to get sort of specific about what tools you can use. So, you know, earth, an easy thing to do is just to grab a rock. Like it can be a crystal, you know, it can be a quartz, but it can literally just be a rock from your backyard. And if anything, a rock that you're digging up from your backyard or from, you know, like the park around the corner, that's going to be much more of the spirits of your place than a quartz crystal that was mined back in Brazil and shipped halfway across the world, right? And that gets back into that idea of what is it that you're trying to accomplish? If you're trying to connect with, you know, the elements of where you live, taking things that are of your place are going to be more valuable. So you can take, you know, rocks from the ground, you can take, you know, sticks from a tree to represent earth, uh, you know, you can find a feather to represent air. Uh, you can also even just grab a jar and blow into it and seal it and have that be, you know, your your air represented in there. Um, you know, candles I, are always great for fire. Uh, for you know, air, goblets for water. For as a non-traditional air element, um, I have an uh, an abandoned wasp nest that I use on my altar that I found that, you know, the wasps built it. They, it was yellow jackets probably. They built it, they abandoned it, it looks real cool. And so I have that as my air element, you know, so you can definitely get creative. Yeah, I have an empty paper wasp nest too, uh, you know, several feathers. But also, you know, just understand that 
even your tools aren't going to be restricted to just one spot in your altar. They can only belong to one element because you can even, you know, grab four stones and then draw symbols on them that represent earth, air, fire, and water. And so you have four stones representing each of the four elements. So it's not like you can't use a stone for every cardinal direction. So the answer really is to find something that represents that for you and gather that. But that, again, that's only if the kind of witchcraft that you're looking to practice is about connecting with elemental magic and the elements. Because if you're looking for a relationship with a specific deity, then you don't really need to bother with the four elements, right? So right. The, the goal of what you're doing really is going to inform what your tools are. Yeah. And I think with, with deity, it comes up a lot like, oh, I have to like get this expensive statue. It's like, no, you absolutely don't. I I personally don't have any expensive statues on my altars. I have random things I made myself. I have um, things like for Athena, I have some owl things that I found. Um, for Aphrodite, I have some heart-shaped things that I found. Um, you can just write a deity's name nicely on a piece of paper. It's, you know, when you're connecting with deity, it's about focus. If, if that's the magic that you do, the tool you need is something that reminds you of who you're connecting with. So whether it is a statue or a photo that you've printed off the internet uh, or their name written out or just an object that reminds you of them, you know, that's that's the tool that you need is just something to remind you of it. And a lot of magic when I was um, when I was first practicing, even before I started getting into elemental stuff, um, a lot of it. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about meditative work later, um, because I think that that's an important part. Um, but you know, a lot of it is just a focus thing. It's something to focus your mind on. And that can be as simple as a candle flame. It can be a personal symbol. We talked about the sigil engine it can be some sort of sigil like that, that you focus on. Um, although interesting to kind of go back to that, one of the things they mentioned in the article is that um, one of the ways that they use it is to meditate on it, activate it, and then hide it or destroy it. And that is actually, um, I just wanted to say that that, is that that process is called occulting. So when you call like, you know, witchcraft, it's the occult, it's from the Latin word for hidden. And so there's two ways to work with symbols it is um, to either keep it in front of you so it's a meditative object that you're focusing on or it's to hide it and that that hiding kind of like is a symbolically putting it on the subconscious level so that you know you can either work with them consciously or subconsciously and in a magical standpoint that kind of sympathetic magic of one thing affects the other thing is um, to physically hide the object from yourself so you're not looking at it and that kind of symbolically is putting it in your subconscious level so so for a beginner you know you can you work with an object that speaks to you that helps you focus that energy and you might only need just one thing for a long time when I was a teenager I used a symbol of an ankh I was really into Egyptian stuff in high school me too I had an ankh necklace that I wore for years and years and years so I was really into Egyptian stuff in high school and I used a symbol of an ankh that um, I literally cut it out of paper and I like, I, I think I had it like taped to a speaker of my stereo system in my house, in my, my parents' house. And like that was, I would sit and meditate and concentrate on that. And that was, that was for a long time that and like a stick of incense and a candle was the only tools I used. Yeah. And that actually kind of takes us into the next beginner question that we have, which is how to evolve your practice meaningfully when you have very little resources and 
you know, we've sort of already answered that, but you don't need anything to be fancy, right? The only tool that you really absolutely need is your mind and your willpower, right? That is the basis of all magic. Like, even if you have the fanciest, you know, chalices, the most expensive fucking crystal in the world, all of that is useless if all you're doing is sitting them on your table and thinking they look pretty and forgetting about them, right? Because we are the ones who activate the magic. We are the ones who make things happen. So really that's all you need. If you have, you know, zero dollars to your name, that is not going to prevent you from practicing witchcraft because that work is all done internally, right? All these tools that we have are just exactly that. They're tools. They're, they're helping us externalize this internal process. Right. And as, as you said, like if, you know, if you're trying, if you need a tool and you don't have it and you don't have the money to create it, to, to, you know, to go out and get it, you can literally write the name on a piece of paper and have that as a stand-in for you and use that. And the, the mental energy that you put into seeing that as the thing that it says on the paper will be very strong and be very powerful. Um, and I think one of the good things about like, you know, if you do get tools is that it does allow you to pull back some of that mental energy from, you know, like visualizing the elements to like, okay, they visualize for me. Now I can concentrate more of my, my energy on the thing I'm trying to accomplish. So it's not like tools are useless. Tools definitely have a purpose and they are helpful, but they are not strictly necessary. You can start at any, you can start at any level. Um, and I mean, I, right now I have an LED candle burning on my Hermes altar um, because I wanted something burning all the time and I have cats and they will burn my house down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I have something specifically to ask, I'll light a real candle. But most of the time I have just a, I, it's literally, it's an like orange glitter Halloween candle. That's an LED candle, but it's Hermes and he's into the weird things. So, you know, he's fine with that. You know, but if you live in a place, like if you're in a college dorm room where you can't have a flame, like grab a orange and yellow marker and just draw a flame and stick it on your altar right? right because the idea is that you're drawing in that energy and like yes it is harder to connect with it if you are sort of you know creating these energies just with thought forms as opposed to having the physical thing there but it's not impossible right and i think you know and like i said and you know led candles are fine a real candle is more energetic but if what you're looking for is a symbol, then something that you're allowed to have is better than saying, well, I guess I'm not allowed to do anything and just not doing anything. It's, it's better to, to take those half steps. And I think that really crystallized my head. We've talked a lot about technology and, you know, moving forward with the times, but I think it really crystallized for me many years ago, I was in having a meal in Boston. There's a vegetarian Chinese restaurant um, downtown. It's changed names a few times, but it was at the time it was like overlooking the only two strip clubs that still existed. I don't know if either one of them still exists, but this was several <laughs> years ago. But all of this to say they had an altar behind like near the bar and it was uh, I'm not sure what deity was for. Like I said, it was a, it was a Chinese restaurant, but all aspect, the whole thing was like plastic blown form. Like, um, 
you know those like 1950s Santa Clauses that you'll see at Christmas time mm-hmm. uh, people's yards that they light up from the inside it was made of that and each little stick of incense was part of it and they each had a little light bulb at the end of it wow. because of course you know you probably don't want to be burning incense in a restaurant where people are eating. People will probably complain about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but each little stick of incense had this tiny little light bulb at the end of it. And I was just like, you know, this is obviously, I don't know what tradition it was. I don't know if they were Buddhist or, you know, I didn't ask, but I was like, you know, this is a long standing religion that is not, you know, recreated the way that pagan religions are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're it's plastic yeah sure it's plastic and it plugs into a wall but it's their altar All right but it has intentionality right? right they went through the trouble of you know building it to have a little bulb at the end of the incense so right that intentionality matters so much more than ultimately the fact that it's you know plastic as opposed to you know incense that i made with my own hands from my <laughs> sweat and tears Right. And not to say that there isn't definitely value of that. I make a lot of things with my own hands, with my own sweat and tears. And putting that intention into it means that I need to put less intention into it later. But, mm-hmm. you know, for there's, this comes up a lot about like, I live in a college dorm. How can I practice? I can't burn incense. I can't light candles. And you, you can still practice witchcraft mm-hmm. without incense and candles. Yeah, and that actually leads us to a sort of the follow-up question, which is, well, how do you evolve your practice meaningfully when you have little time? And so, you know, sort of understanding where it makes more sense for you to be spending your time is going to let you use your time more efficiently. Like, you know, you don't need to be, uh, you know, throwing clay to make your own, you know, sacred container, like that's going to take up a ton of time. So if you can ahead of time figure out, you know, here's how I'm going to give myself shorthands for these symbols that I need or these tools, then you can spend the little time that you have focusing on the actual work. But, uh, you know, this is one place where I will say that spending time doing the work does matter. You know, we, we just spent a whole lot of time saying, don't worry about things being expensive and being perfect. And it's more important to have a connection. But the question of, you know, how do you develop a meaningful practice when you have little time? I keep thinking of something someone said to me many years ago, and I, you know, I don't know who the original person who said it was, but it was, you know, you should meditate for 20 minutes every day, unless you don't have time, and then you should do it for an hour, <laughs> right? And it has that, that, that element of prior, priority to it, right? Um, your practice needs to be consistent. Does that mean that you need to spend an hour every day? No, maybe you only have a minute. But what you do in that minute really matters. So how can you focus in that minute and make it really count? Can you develop a uh, you know prayer for yourself that you can recite in a minute that has all the elements that you want? You know, if it's that you're connecting to the elements, can you write some sort of poem or prayer to the elements that you can recite in a minute and do that every day to to crystallize your relationship? Or can you write a prayer to a deity? Um, it actually reminds me of this article that I read many, many years ago, and it wasn't about witchcraft at all, it was about exercise, about how a woman really wanted to get into exercising more regularly, and she committed to do literally one minute of workout a day. And so she would set her timer, and she would get down on her hands and knees and do push-ups for one minute every single day. And at the mo- end of the month, she was surprised to notice that it was actually making a difference. And it wasn't because she was doing one minute, because of course, one minute of exercise isn't going to do shit for anybody, but she was doing it for one minute every day and Mm -hmm. seeing those gains. So, 
you know, in a way it's actually better for you to just spend one minute every day than to every two months, take a whole day off to practice for a whole day. Right. And you can also like, you can combine things with other things you're doing already. Like, um, you can do a lot of spiritual work in the shower, like spiritual cleansing work, really like using like the physical water to, and there are prayers that you can recite, like, you know, while you're washing the soap off of you, that's also like, you know, cleansing you spiritually. You can recite prayers to yourself while like letting the conditioner sit into your hair, you know, like, like, oh, I have to stand here for a minute before I can rinse my hair. Well, you know, you can incorporate that and like I said, if you're really st- stuck for time, because, you know, bathing is a time that you've already set aside for yourself. Right. Even so. honestly chopping onions, because that's a repetitive motion. So, you know, chop mm-hmm. your onions and recite something that you've created. Uh, for me, the time that I'm driving is a time when I use for a lot of prayer, because um, I can't remember if I have mentioned this before, but my first car, you know, we couldn't afford to, the the stereo for it. And being in Brazil, I definitely picked the air conditioner over the stereo. So for years, I had no music in my car. So I started entertaining myself by chanting and singing. And I started using those moments to connect with deity. And so I still do that. Like if I'm driving somewhere, I'm probably singing chants out loud and, you know, using that motion of, you know, driving somewhere and having that focus, right? Because it kind of triggers an office state uh, anyway, when you're driving. So I use that time to be praying and reciting chants. So it's not that I am setting aside extra time in my day, but I'm finding ways to use my daily routine to incorporate that. And that gets back to that idea of, you know, your witchcraft practice isn't something that has to exist in complete isolation from the rest of your life. Like it should fit into what your life is. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, I mentioned it previously and you brought it up, but meditation is a huge part of magical practice and about that, like connecting to yourself and connecting to how your thoughts work. And um, I do recommend the Headspace uh, application, uh, the, the app. I've used it for several years. Um, you can get a lot of that out of the free version, which is just like, you know, 10 minute segments of you know, the basics of like how to do the, the tech basically of, of meditating. But one of the, the things that they had in it um, that I thought was useful was the usual meditative practice that they teach. They have some visualizing ones, but mostly it's, you know, following your breath of counting your breaths. And that's like what you keep. But they have um, they have one about you know, like walking and meditating, and that you're counting your footsteps as your your meditative touchstone. And the idea, and this is imp- this is interesting to bring up because you know you brought up you know while you're driving, and people think oh meditating is about checking out, but it's not. It's the opposite. It's about being all the way aware. You know, it's like this idea of like that meditating is to make your mind blank. And so that you're completely like a blank slate and there's nothing there is not at all what meditation is about. It's about, it's about mindfulness. It's about being aware, but it's about adjusting how you react to that awareness. And so it's not Mm -hmm. unsafe to do a meditative work as you walk down the street because you are aware you're just letting it all flow into you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is, um, that's, that's something that I think a lot of beginners who haven't done a lot of meditation, um, 
you know, like, oh, like I'm supposed to be making my mind blank. And obviously there's other like meditative type things. Like when you, you know, like the, your journeying work where you really are laying on the floor with your eyes closed and you are, you know, you're blocking out the external world because you're focusing on the internal world, um, but you're still not making yourself blank. Right. Like you're still actively participating and engaging, right? Like you're not going to just completely tune out and, you know, smoking weed and meditating are not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, to me, the core of meditative and witchcraft practice and just, you know, the idea of trying to be more in tune with our surroundings and, you know, make an impact on that. To me, the core of all that is being able to enter an alpha state with your brain. And that's actually a class that I used to teach, uh, which was, you know, triggering an alpha state. And what does that mean, right? Because I think that this is where a lot of the confusion comes from. So an alpha state actually has to do with the rate of your brain waves, right? When we're fully alert and awake and engaged, we are in what's called a beta state. And that has to do with the literal speed and frequency of your brain waves. And so an alpha state is just slightly slower than that beta, right? Your brain waves actually slow down a little bit more and that's considered the state where you are uh, most receptive but also more, most capable of you know, affecting change. You know, so you're, you're most receptive but you're also projecting very effectively. But the thing is, is that people go, well, how do I know if I'm an alpha state? Because they expect that they're going to feel this like massive shift in how they're experiencing the world or how they feel. And the truth is that it doesn't really feel all that different. Like you're still alert, you're not losing control of anything, but your brain waves do slow down. And you do that by doing things like focusing your eyesight on a flame, by doing controlled breathing. Uh, Square breathing is a really, really powerful method for doing that. There's actually an app for that. Um, It's also called box breathing. So I don't remember what the app is called, but it's a technique that's so effective in helping you recenter your mind that it's actually be being used by like Navy SEALs in their training. Right? Yeah, so it's I, not I, yeah. just bullshit, you know? Yeah, I know, I know um, like, you know, therapists that use it as well with their patients that to, to, as an anxiety control technique. Right. And so, you know, ultimately what you're trying to do, you know, with all these tools, with uh, with the meditation and the visualization and you know, all these things that you're bringing together, the having of tools, that the doing of ritual, all of that is actually intended to trigger uh, an office state. Uh, the, the repetitive motion is something that triggers that in our brains automatically. So that's why across religious practices, you know, globally, we see things like chanting, ja- dancing, repetitive motions, you know, bowing, power poses, because all these things that we're doing, it triggers kind of that, you know, automatic process in your brain and it triggers the, the alpha state, right? Um, reduced lighting is something that triggers that, you know, flickering candle flames, repetitive music. So ultimately what we're trying to do is find tools that help us get our brain waves into an alpha state or slower. Actually, that's a really good point that um, for people who are beginning, um, re- repeat things. Don't say like, you know, you got a book and like, oh, I'm doing, you know, spell number four today. And oh, look, spell number 16 looks interesting. I will do that in a couple of days and like just jump around and see like, oh, nothing's really working because you're not sinking into anything. Yeah, the repetition is really important. So do find something that you can do on multiple times. 
some spells will have, you know, like you'll use a large candle and you'll burn down an inch of it and then snuff it. And then, you know, like a seven day candle, I think that's mm-hmm. what they're often called. Um, yeah. But, you know, you, you'll burn down an inch of it on one day and then the next day you'll do the exact same thing and burn down another inch. And, um, you know, that, rep- that repetition will really make it sink into you and will really make it seem like you're not just playing because mm-hmm. I think that that is a big blocker for a lot of people is um, because of the culture that most of us were raised in, this can all seem very silly to our conscious minds. And so that repetition and being comfortable and choosing tools that you're comfortable with helps get past that feeling of this is ridiculous. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and, and, and it makes it real. And um, there are people who have kind of innate skills that can still affect change, even while second guessing yourself and saying this is ridiculous. But those are pretty rare that that's going to happen. Um, usually, if you think that it's not going to work, then it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because your brain is what's driving this thing and if you're if you're telling yourself well this is dumb then yeah that's that's the result you're going to get so i think that you know repetition and being comfortable and so i think you know we were talking about tools it's really if you need to have a specific tool to be comfortable then yeah do your best to find that specific tool because that will make it seem like you're doing it real and that will make put you in that brain space but it's really not necessary And I think one of the other questions that was asked about was how to have a practice when, um, when you're living with someone who doesn't approve. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something that's come up um, with people I know a lot that, especially with younger people who are, you know, living with parents who might be um, from a conservative religious standpoint and, you know, that, that's a, a big issue with a lot of people. Um, it could just be, you know, your roommates keep interrupting you. There's a lot of reasons like, you know, ha- that you're, the people that you live with might disapprove. So I think that there's a few different things. One, if these are people that you've chosen to live with, tell them to cut the shit out. Like that's, that's not cool. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the question is, you know, ask about family more specifically, but that's a good yeah. point that not everyone lives with family. And so, you know, there's two sort of questions. One is if your family doesn't approve, but doesn't live with you, or is it people who are in your living space? But this question is actually so old because religious oppression has been around for so long that people have been having to practice in secret for a very, very long time. And the place that we can see that more obviously now is in religious practice within the African diaspora, right? Because so many of the African religions had to be masked within Christianity, right? And so that's why you see a lot of, uh, you know, air quotes, traditional tradition, uh, Christian figures and statues and saints used in contexts like Santeria and Candomblé and you know, voodoo and other practices. And that's not because folks are necessarily using, you know, Christian, you know, figures and energies, but they're using those, you know, physical objects as a stand-in for what they actually want to be communicating with, right? So a lot of the Orishas have been linked to various Catholic saints as a way to be able to practice safely, right? Because if you have, you know, Saint whoever on your altar, 
that is going to be more accepted in a mainstream context than in, you know, a statue that actually looks like an you know, African deity. And so mm-hmm. that's something that you can use in your own practice, you know, say that you are in a very uh, you know, traditional Christian household and you're not allowed to have any items that look occult, but that doesn't mean that you can't use a statue of a saint as a stand-in for a deity or that you can't use a statue of the Virgin Mary as a stand-in for the goddess. Like you can definitely do that. So you can be creative, right? Like your altar, your space doesn't have to look, you know, traditionally witchy because, you know, what does that even mean? Uh, I personally love having an altar that's kind of covered in like random, like magic debris and candle bits and feathers. And, you know, it kind of looks that scene. And I love that. I have that. But I have that now that I live in my own home in a place where I'm safe to practice. That wasn't always the case. So I know someone whose altar is basically one of the copies in their like Ikea Calyx bookshelf. That's that square Mm -hmm. one that everyone has, but it's one square and it has a potted plant with some, you know, crystals in the dirt and they pour water on it regularly. And, you know, they just have a few little tchotchkes that for them symbolize, you know, the elements but to anyone who walks into that space, it's just a cubby and a shelf with like a plant and some decorations. Right. And so like, that's a very, uh, you know, easy way to have things out in the open that are meaningful to you that are, you know, hidden from other people, right? It's right. a cult. Yeah. And I think that it's important that if you are in a living situation where it would be unsafe to practice openly, that it is important that your safety is the most important thing. Like that's, that's what you need to prioritize is your safety. Like, you know, or, you know, how, if you're a teenager, how are your parents going to react if you suddenly, you know, put up something like, you know, a pentacle on your wall or whatever, like my parents personally didn't really care. So um, uh, I didn't have that experience. I was raised Catholic, but very, nominally catholic my parents weren't totally into it you know so they were they were fine but if your parents are going to freak out on you then yeah like don't do it until you have a place of your own like and and not don't practice witchcraft but just don't do it so openly because like the point of practicing witchcraft isn't to piss off your family like that's (laughs) (laughs) it should be a little bit to piss off the patriarchy but right necessarily your family right so like you know that's that's not the point of it so like fabbing tools that you can work you know in your way that fits into your life I think is important I think is what all of these things have come down to is that making magic and making your own beliefs fit into your life is important until you can make your life fit into those beliefs and like some at some point they mesh Right. I mean, you know, right now I can, you know, wear my big black hooded robe and grab my big drum and stomp around my house, you know, banging my drum away. I can go out into my backyard and, you know, piss off all the neighbors because I'm doing it in my backyard. So, you know, I get to be that person in my neighborhood who's in, you know, in my black robes with all my candles in my backyard and my drum. But you know what? There was a time when all I could do was go downstairs in my apartment building and walk outside and sit underneath the nearest tree and close my eyes and do ritual in my head because I couldn't, you know, get up and, you know, wave a knife around in the middle of this public area. Well, I mean, I could, but I probably 
would not be pleased with the consequences, right? <laughs> but I could still sit there and visualize myself drawing a circle, right? Mm-hmm. And visualize myself lighting a candle. So it, you can do that. You can be engaging in ritual, but anyone who was, you know, walking by, I was just some person sitting under a tree with my eyes closed. Right. I mean, like you're saying, you know, like you're talking about going in your your robe and your drum in your backyard. We live in Salem, Massachusetts. So frankly, we could march into downtown beating drums and wearing black robes and people might take photos. <laughs> um, yeah. We were a tourist attraction, but, you know, no one, uh, no one would call the cops. They might if we had knives. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, um, so, you know, I think it really depends on your situation and what you can get away with. But as you said, like, and religious, religious persecution has been such a thing for so long and not just, you know, in our current state. I mean, the early Christians were hidden in their practice because it was a new weird thing and they didn't want the authorities to find out about it. Um, so like, it's just, you know, the status quo is very strong. And so anytime you're doing something outside of the status quo, um, obviously if you are open about it, it's good because then people can see that it's something that other people are doing and that you're not alone, which I think is one of the reasons we do this podcast is to talk about our experiences and to talk about things that we do so people can, you know, if they take from our example, that's amazing. But just to know that there's other people thinking these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you are in a safe place to do that, that's amazing to be open, to live your truth, whatever that is. But if it's not safe to do that, as I said before, then don't invite danger to yourself because you're trying to prove a point. All right. Yeah, I mean, you know, now I have ritual tattoos that are permanently inked on my body. There was a time when I couldn't do that. And so I would draw magical symbols on my arm with a pen before ritual. Mm-hmm. And like that doesn't make the symbols any less effective just because they weren't permanently inked. Right. Uh, I'm just trying to think back. It's been a very long time since I was a new witch. Um, but I think that um, I think most of the pushback I got was actually from my peers like in school because Mm -hmm. I was open about my beliefs and I would talk about them. And I was definitely the crazy person (laughs) in my high school. I, um, there was uh, a guy I had a crush on that years later I was talking to him and I was just like, okay, so the whole school knew I had a crush on you, but you asked my best friend out instead. Like, you know, what was going through your head at the time? And he was just like, yeah, I thought about it. He's like, but everyone thought that you were the crazy girl and I didn't want my reputation hurt by like dating the crazy girl. So, (laughs) (laughs) so that's definitely, um, that's definitely like, that was my experience that I was, that I didn't feel that I needed to suppress that part of myself. And so I didn't, and I definitely got pushback on it. Um, I, I don't think I would do it differently if um, I think I probably would be more open about it going back. And like, I, I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, that was, that, that was real shitty. I should hide that more. I think that knowing like the consequences looking back were actually pretty minimal. Yeah, um, but they feel so very big when you're 15 they, they, years old, you know, they felt very big when I was 15, 16, but, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it differently going back and um, Yeah. I think that, yeah, so I think that if you're in a place to be open about it, and like I said, my parents, my parents thought it was weird and kind of cute, but 
I did have, they had one, my mom had a friend who, um, she had actually taught me to read tea leaves when I was little. When I was like six or seven, she had taught me to read tea leaves. She was my mom's cool friend. But then when I was in middle school, high school, she got divorced and she joined some really repressive religion. I don't know specifically which one, but it was one of those religions that sees demons and everything. Mm. Um, and not in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I had in high school, I took over the room. There was a a room, my parents' house above the kitchen. And, um, I, I took over that room and I painted the inside to look like a castle. Uh, It's still painted to look like a castle 30 years later, um, because no one's ever bothered to repaint it. (laughs) Um, but, I had a couple of posters on my wall and this woman had come over um, to visit my mom and my mom was like, oh, come look at Beck's, you know, her her room. She just repainted it. And she turned to my mom afterwards and she's just like, she has demon pictures of demons on her walls. You really like, you know, you should do something about it. The pictures of demons I had on my wall were a picture from a children's storybook of St. George slaying a dragon. And a picture of Yoda that said the, the reed and the force is with you. <laughs> so um, she eventually stopped coming by. I think my mom had it up with, had it enough with her. And, um, but, you know, it was disappointing that she had gone from someone who had literally taught me how to read tea leaves when I was a very young child to being like, oh no, Yoda's evil. Uh, <laughs> So, like, St. George and the Dragon is evil because, like, you know, she was one of those religions who thought anything, like, Catholic was demonology as well. So, um, so there's definitely, like, some pushback in that, but my mom was on my side. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And my mom is very much a, uh, an earth mother type. Um, You know, she's always out in her garden and, uh, and she has recently, I've recently told her how to find my tarot channel on YouTube and she's watched some of them. So uh, that's weird because, you know, we, we do this, like I said, I don't use um, my last name in the publicity for this. I'm not like hiding the fact that my last name is Murphy, but I just use my first and middle names um, just for Google searching to keep my identities kind of separate. So I don't really... I've never hidden this stuff from my family, but I don't also talk about it very much. Um, most of my family at this point are atheists. And my older sisters, like when my dad was dying and I was in the hospital room and I had tarot cards and I was pulling tarot cards and stuff, they were just like, it's cute that you believe in something. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's that's sort of like the relationship I have with my family and my beliefs. And so I think... Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's relationship is different with, you know, who they're around and what you want to talk about and what you don't want to talk about and what is private and what is public. And um, and you need to figure that out for yourself. Everyone's answer is going to be different depending on your circumstances. Yeah, but you know what? There's I feel like there's also this pressure to come out of the broom closet, as they call it, you know, to announce yourself as a witch to the world. And you know what? You don't have to announce shit to anybody. You know, like this is, it's a, it's a personal path. So I did have to be careful because, uh, you know, I even remember asking my dad to bring me some witchcraft books back from a trip to Europe when we were still in South America. And he was like, oh, I'm not comfortable with, you know, buying witchcraft books. And 
But the thing is, you know, as I got older, I never got to a point where I came back and said, well, you know what, I'm still a witch and I'm still doing this. Like I never made a formal declaration. I just started Mm -hmm. living my life and letting them kind of, you know, pay attention or not. At this point, I've published a book on shamanism. It got translated to French. You know, anyone who wants to know that that's who I am, it's definitely out there. But I definitely don't spend any time in my regular life being like, hey, folks, I'm a witch. Don't forget, I'm a witch. Here's my weekly I'm a witch post. You know, I I don't do that. I just live my life with those beliefs in my life, just Mm -hmm. like, you know, hopefully most people will do with their religions. But I, you know, I was going to say that just like everyone else. But no, folks really like rubbing their religion in everyone's faces. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like, you know, like I said, it comes up with my family, things like, you know, I brought tarot cards to the hospital when my dad was dying. And, you know, it's some things like that, that it, it comes up that I'm not, it's not something that I normally bring up in conversation, but it was something that I felt I needed to connect to in that situation. And so I was doing it in front of my family. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, it is, you know, it's, it's, everyone has their own personal, what they're comfortable with. Um, and it depends on where you are in your journey. And it depends on where the people in your lives are in their, their journeys. Like if, you know, if someone is in a very conservative religion, then um, it's going to be harder to 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 make those um, you know to make those changes. And you eventually just have to find places where you can live your life the way that you want to be living it. Yeah, I'm actually going to um, use a quote that I enjoy that may or may not actually belong to Maggie Smith. It seems like there's some debate there. Uh, but the quote that's been, you know, shown many times with her in her full Downton Abbey gear is, my dear, religion is like a penis. It's a perfectly fine thing for one to have and take pride in, but when one takes it out and waves it in my face, we have a problem. Right? <laughs> so, and so that's the thing is, like, you know, don't get caught up in that idea that you have to make big, bold public declarations. Honestly, most people probably don't want to hear about it. Just like, I don't really want, you know, my neighborhood, you know, Christians and Muslims and Jewish folks. And honestly, anyone else, I don't really want them to come talk to me about how like, hey, you really need to know what I'm practicing. In fact, when, you know, people who do that kind of work knock on my door to tell me about their religions, I don't really want to hear about it. Yeah. You know, it's, it goes back to that idea of, you know, hopefully the goal of what we're doing is some sort of spiritual growth, you know, whatever that looks like to you. Uh, you know, whether you believe in deity and the divine or whatever, but the, but the goal hopefully of engaging in witchcraft practice is to help us evolve as people. And the moment that we approach it from a perspective of, well, what I'm doing is better than what other people are doing. At that moment, you've sort of lost that battle of personal evolution. Right. Right. And you have to, you know, it's better for you. And it's, you know, it might, maybe it would be better for someone else, but they need to come to that decision on their own. Right. Yeah. You can't force anyone into enlightenment. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's, that's important is that um, when you do feel safe enough to, to, like I said, to live your truth, you're not winning friends by, by being an asshole about it and for judging other people for having different paths. (laughs) Anyway, well, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening to Becca and me ramble for an hour on things witchy and things not so witchy because, uh, as you know, we can get a little off track, but we hope that this is helping folks who are just getting started to feel like 
you know, this is not insurmountable and that there aren't all these obstacles in your way. It's really about making a decision to live your life in a certain way and really internalizing and focusing, you know, your intent and all your work that you're doing. Uh, if you have any more questions for us, we always love hearing from you. Uh, please email us at askthewitch at witchcitywitches.com. Please subscribe to our podcast. If you're enjoying this, please leave us a review and let everyone know because it helps more folks find us. And thanks so much for tuning in and we'll be chatting with the guests next time. Thank you so much.